Welcome to VCR, Vintage Cinema Rewind, bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. Okay, campers, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's cold out there today. <laughs> you certainly have a face for radio, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I do now. <laughs> We're doing Groundhog Day, the classic from 1993, a Bill Murray specialty, the Murricane. Not here in person, but here in spirit. Unfortunately not, no. Although given <laughs> Bill Murray's like tendency to just show up in the randomest of places, like who knows what could happen in the next hour. True. Maybe he'll <laughs> knock on my door asking to borrow a cup of sugar and he'll just come on for the rest of the podcast. I promise absolutely nothing on that, and I hope you're still not disappointed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a great what a great quote. I should start starting all my lessons with that. Like I promise absolutely nothing and I hope you're not disappointed. <laughs> this is our spoiler full discussion of Groundhog Day. If you haven't seen this movie before, highly recommend going back a week and checking out the Groundhog Day primer episode where we go into, you know, a little plot summary, talk who this movie's for, all that fun stuff, talk a little bit about Bill Murray, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, and where you can check this one out. Otherwise, this is, again, our spoiler-full discussion, so we're just about to just dive right into it. We're not pulling any punches. We're going right down the rabbit hole, or the groundhog hole, as I should say. Blake, edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say we're driving right down the train tracks in a car with no care in the world. Yes, exactly. And with an extra who looks suspiciously like Tim Dillon. <laughs> you're actually not wrong that yeah. actually i couldn't think of where i'd seen him before and that's it he just looks like a cross between tim dylan and chris farley there's an extra in one a couple scenes of this movie he looks just like tim dylan uh, joe rogan's little buddy anyways it was very distracting yeah i was not expecting us to start with an extra doppelganger today in this conversation but here we are well before we start recording you said are, are you prepared to talk about this and i said yes so <laughs> i'm giving you what you wanted <laughs> well let's start in front of the camera and work our way back where do you want to start with groundhog day chronological order one day at a time oh, the rest of your life i see indeed what you are doing there i don't know i mean this movie's so interesting Again, like you said last week, the whole idea of a time loop has become sort of a mini genre in and of itself at this point. Mm -hmm. But this was a very wild premise for a movie when it came out. Yeah, definitely. Like there was some short stories that kind of played with this idea. There was some stories back in the early 1900s. What this is essentially based on as well, what the writer thought of when he was writing about this was a vampire novel which i'll talk about a little bit later and how you know what it would be like to live forever kind of thing and that's kind of where all of this is born out of yeah i think i danny rubin right the co-writer yes. yeah that's interesting wasn't his whole idea that like you know if you could live forever you would eventually become a good person by accident because <laughs> you've had all this time to figure it out. Or like, wasn't his whole thing, he's like, you know, your average person can't figure out all their own bullshit in 100 years. So you'd probably need like, you know, 10,000 years to get it all figured out. Well, and that actually is interesting, an interesting conversation in and of itself, right? Like, there's a lot of mystery around the time loop in Groundhog Day, right? Like, mm -hmm. why is this happening? 
how long has it occurred for? Like, all of this stuff doesn't really get answered in the movie, and personally, I think that that's actually a very wise choice for the story that this film is trying to tell. I remember Danny Rubin talking about how he wanted to have a sequence where, like, it was something like Phil would read a book in a page every day, and that would be how he would mark the passage of time in this time loop, right? Right. But the studio actually was like, no, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. I forget what their reasoning for that for, but, like, I do actually think the studio was right on that one because, like, it could have been five years. It could have been 10 years. It could have been, like, 10,000 years. Like, right. we have no idea how long he's been in there for. Well, and each person has a different theory, right? Like, each of the, the writer the director, Bill Murray, like each of them kind of has their own theory to how long uh, Phil spends in the time loop. I don't know about you where you've babysit on on that argument. For me, I, w- I kind of subscribe to the 30 to 40 year time range because, you know, we do see Phil learning some really technical complicated skills throughout the movie he right? gets really good at a lot of things <laughs> you know yeah like ice sculpting piano like all that stuff and like if you subscribe to the whole like malcolm gladwell ten thousand hours theory then like he probably spent like close to 10 years getting really really good at all those things right and even like something like early on in the film where we see phil stealing a bag of money out of the bank truck right Mm -hmm. that would probably take i don't know weeks like at least several weeks for him to memorize and learn every single second of how to steal that perfectly right and there's that scene with uh rita later on where he's trying to convince her that he's lived this whole day over and over again and they're in a restaurant and he's just like, okay, like in about 10 seconds, Larry's going to come in and say this, like in about five seconds, that waiter is going to drop a tray. And then like, he's walking around the restaurant and he's introducing her to all these people and like sharing all these deep, complicated theory. Like he's sharing all these really deep information about all of them. And it's like, I don't care how good your memory is. You've been doing this for a while. Yeah, definitely. And, and that comes about to like, part of my favorite conversation about you know what i talked about last week as the episode that i would sell this movie on is the phil's a god conversation where he's like you know maybe god isn't just like this omnipotent like presence maybe he's just been around so long that he knows everything yeah. that's such that's such a fun idea and i really love when movies that don't offer explanations at least offer ideas and an interesting like thoughts to think about right yeah and i mean like it's funny like you and i watched edge of tomorrow over the summer and they provided an explanation for the time loop which i thought was interesting this movie very wisely just throws up its hands and has no idea right like even the whole idea of like a groundhog sees a shadow and like then there's six more weeks of winter like you can tie some like loose thematic threads to that and phil's situation but like very very loosely you know what i mean yeah, definitely. And I and I agree with you that I think it's a really good decision. And, you know, there's not even little kernels of an idea thrown throughout. Like, it's not like the film's even just trying to, like, subtly tell you maybe what happened or why this is happening. And again, I think that's a really strong decision for the story that this particular time loop movie is trying to tell. 
Yeah, it's just very... It's more about Phil and his character arc through this time loop. You know what I yeah. mean? It's almost right. like he's... It is a very spiritual movie in that he's almost in, like, purgatory or something, and he has to unfuck his way out of purgatory. I will say, though, on to counter all of this, the best fan theory that I read while I was doing my research was... I think it was in, like, a YouTuber comment or something like that, but it was a theory that... Ned, the insurance guy, has created the time loop <laughs> and is basically right. selling insurance to people using and manipulating them through the time loop. And the the best supporting argument for that was that basically like it takes until the final loop for us to see Phil buy every single insurance possible. Wow. I <laughs> you know what? I, I, I stand corrected. That's my new favorite. That's my headcanon too. Yeah. Ned Ryerson? (laughs) Whatever you're doing later, cancel it. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) He's just like, I got to go. That's really funny. (laughs) Although I will say, and we talked about this last week, too. Like, it is shockingly satisfying seeing Phil become a good person. One of my favorite moments is when he's in, like, I guess you could call it the final loop. Although even that's ambiguous. He's just walking down the street. He checks his watch. He's like, oh, crap. And he just books it down the street, and he catches a kid falling yeah. from the tree. And he's just like, you have never once thanked me. And then he's like, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> like, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually, maybe that's a good spot to frame this conversation a little bit is the evolution of Phil as a character throughout this film. And I even want to frame it in the idea of the five stages of grief, because Mm -hmm. that's actually something that Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. Oh, Danny Rubin. Yeah. Danny Rubin. Yeah. Though it's kind of what those two in their discussions of maybe where this film of eventually the script eventually would land is how they would navigate Phil through this situation and get him from what we see in the opening scenes is like a deeply narcissistic, miserable human being into somebody yeah into somebody that we genuinely care about um we want to succeed and everybody else wants to see him succeed wants you know wants to be in his presence i know he's like he is like the man he is the big man on campus at the end you know when like rita and uh, larry go into the like um I don't know, like the town dance or something. He's just up there playing the piano, having a good time, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like everybody in town knows him. And when you think about that and think about, you know, how that final day would have to go for him to have such wide recognition throughout the town, like it's not like anybody else is experiencing this time loop or has, or even has like any sort of deja vu. Like there isn't a lot of hint towards people having any sort of memory or idea that this is happening over and over again. No, it's completely. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody has to kind of come around on this guy in only a few short hours, right? Pretty much, but you got to hand it to Phil. He completely nails it. You know, there's that great moment where, uh, what's his name? General Zod. Yes, uh, Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon and his wife, they they come up to it. It's like, and like his wife had been having second thoughts about marrying him. And Bill Murray's like, oh, I just needed to fan the flames of his of her love for you. And then he reaches into his suit pocket. He's like, hey, check it out, WrestleMania tickets. Like, <laughs> and it's just like, wow. <laughs> like, 
Uh, and and you know like even on something like the wrestlemania tickets if you think about like the deeper idea of that like he would have had to find somebody very specifically in town to acquire those tickets from right like this is pre-internet too even you almost get the sense that phil is spending every single day running the exact same quest over and over and over again and he just Mm -hmm. he's so good at it by this point yeah then actually there's something i wanted to bring up so when I first saw this movie, you know how there's that whole thing with, like, the homeless man? Right. Yeah. And I, actually, that's probably my favorite sequence of the movie is Phil's immortality kind of contrasted with the mortality of the people around him and the fact that, like, he can't change the future. He can't change what's going to happen. Like, Ultimately, they're even in this this one day and having like this ultimate power. Basically, there are some things that are meant to happen. Yeah. So the whole premise is there's this old guy who Phil, this old homeless man who Phil keeps walking past throughout the movie. At one point, like he very snarkily tells him, he's like, "Hey, I'll get you tomorrow." He finally, at one point, tries to do something nice for him, but the guy ends up getting sick and dying. And then Phil runs through a few other routes trying to save the guy and he just realizes that no matter what he does the guy is just gonna die right yeah so then he just resolves to be as nice to the guy as possible on his final day Mm -hmm. and when i first saw this movie in 2020 i thought that whole sequence probably could have been cut Hmm. like i didn't think it added much to the movie but on rewatch this week i realized that like no you absolutely can't cut that sequence because it by this point in the movie, uh, Phil has kind of started coming around and kind of stopped being such a prick. But right. like, it's almost like, um, like you know the story of the Buddha, how like he was sequestered in this palace all his life and then he took three trips out of the palace and he saw like a sick man, like an old man and like a man who'd been dismembered in war and that showed him the reality of suffering. I almost felt like this was kind of a similar thing with Phil where you're right, like... By this point, he's kind of started to come around, but now he's starting to... I feel like that whole experience teaches him to value the lives of the people around him a lot more. And that's kind of when he starts spending every loop trying to be as nice as possible. You know, he starts to pick up on, yeah, the struggles of the people around him, right? Like, there's the, like you said, when he saves the boy from falling. And I believe if you actually rewatch the scene where he's in the hospital talking to the woman, the nurse about the old man and whether or not he's going to live or not, the boy is actually in the hospital with a broken leg at that point in time. Oh, okay. Yeah. The other stuff that happens, like the mayor choking on his dinner. Steak. The, yeah. Yeah. Like what stuff Phil like say that. To him at the end, he's like, he was trying to swallow a whole cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And stuff like that. Right. Like where I think that hospital scene is not only in, like, and in, in the buildup with him and the old man is important in a, in a sense of like where Phil is going in this story, but it also kind of, in a sense, explains how Phil in some sense can learn about everything going on. Right. And, and the impact of seeing these people in a hospital, I think, also is part of the profound impact on him um, well, and the struggles of these individuals. And I think it's really powerful and kind of understated. Like, for all Phil knows, he's going to live out this day for the rest of eternity. And yet right. he's, for all he knows, like, he's going to wake up tomorrow and it's still going to be February 2nd. 
but like he's still going out of his way to protect all these people despite you know the fact that there may be no consequences that's actually a really good point as well the idea of no consequences and i actually do kind of you know we're talking about the latter half of phil's development but i do kind of want to go back and talk about early through mid groundhog day phil yeah sure because you know the phil that we meet pre groundhog day is an absolutely miserable person and it's he's almost living in like the misery of his own making right like he despises everybody around him and ev- and everything around him like he's working at this local news station and he's like you know telling people right in the opening scene that he's better than them that he's going to be heading off to some like national tv station any day now essentially like somebody's gonna pick him up yeah he's kind of like a douchebag local celebrity who thinks he's you know bigger than he is but even under that as well i think that there's like this deep south loathing that while he's projecting this out i think he despises the fact that he is here in this spot himself and he can't seem to get out of it and so like while he's projecting this out i think that there's a lot of inward self-loathing there well there's that great that great uh, conversation he has with Rita later on where she says like I could never be with someone as conceited as you and he says something like conceited I don't even like myself (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and that's really accurate to Phil as I understand him in the beginning of this movie yeah absolutely right I do think this movie has a very strong middle where like we see him kind of adjusting to the time loop and like there is kind of that fun sequence with Tim Dillon where he realizes <laughs> like, oh, hey, like I can do whatever I want with no consequences, right? Right. Well, and that, again, I'm going to kind of tie this to that five stages of grief idea. Like there's the denial in the first probably two loops that he goes through where he's like, this can't be happening. I just had a weird dream last night about this day already. And then the second one where he's like, oh my God, I can't, like this can't be happening. And then- there's the anger with the situation and really the bargaining part of like, I can do whatever I want now in this scenario. And there's no consequences to this. Like, so if I'm being put in this situation, I'm going to take advantage of it. And I actually think that the scene with the, the two drunk guys and D- Tim Dillon, as you put it in the bowling alley, and then the subsequent car chase scene, I actually think that's one of the better scenes of the entire movie i was actually kind of surprised that that wasn't one of the movie clip scenes that we were given an opportunity to like recommend in the primer episode yeah really i mean oh by the way i think um one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is when he's talking to those two like working class dudes at the bowling alley and they're all drinking and phil just says something effective like what if every day was the same and you never went anywhere and nothing you did mattered? And the one guy's just like, well, you just summed me up, all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like that's part of the reason why I love that scene so much is that Phil is, you know, so in his own head that he can't even like he can't even fathom anybody else having any sort of connection to him in that sense, but it also in a way ties the bigger message the more like you know surreal fantasy element of this to our everyday lives as viewers as well right yeah because uh newsflash boys and girls life can get pretty repetitive sometimes it certainly can be like monotonous monotonous (laughs) yeah 
There it is. What Blake said. Yeah, it certainly can be monotonous. Oh sometimes my God. you shave your head <laughs> just to break the monotony. <laughs> or sometimes you ha- grow your hair out long for like a year during COVID. Also that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and I just going through midlife crises through our hair. That's fine. Yeah, you can always tell how me and Blake are doing based on what's going on with our hair. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But no, like, yeah, I, th- I think that scene, not only is it hilarious and, like, that's the first, like, truly funny scene of this film. Like, there's some funny moments, but I think that's, like, the first scene that I really start to get more into the film is, is like, okay, we, we've gotten through the buildup of who this miserable person is. We understand the basic premise of not only the time loop, but also the town of Punxsutawney itself and yeah. the day and, and the basics of the basic structure of the town and the townsfolk's day that he's stuck in. Well, I like that. Like he just decides to have fun for a little bit, you know, like he, right. he seduces this woman by pretending to be like, you know, a high school sweetheart or something. Yeah. And then, you know, he steals a bunch of crap from like an armored car and like, you know, all this stuff. And like, it kind of does make you kind of be like, yeah, like what if I could just, it's like that Rick and Morty episode where he has like the pause or like the save feature from a video game. It's like, what if I could just do whatever I wanted with no consequences? You know what I right. mean? Right. And you know, you could even compare that to something like a video game, like Grand Theft Auto, right? Where you're given the opportunity to be a complete degenerate. And sometimes that's really fun. <laughs> Sometimes we all just want to be complete degenerates with no consequences. Um, right. But on the flip side, like, I thought that maybe, like, the one spot, we didn't really talk about this in the primer, that, you know, post Me Too era, I think that, yeah. you know, some of that definitely doesn't quite hold up as well, right? No. And then, well, that leads to the next thing where he tries seducing Rita, right? And. What a very bizarre sequence of the movie because I was really conflicted watching that scene actually because I found that even like when Phil isn't being honest to Rita in those scenes, like he's trying to manipulate the situation, I still like him enough that I want him to succeed. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but on the flip side... You can still see, and this is in part, I think, credit to the screenplay, but also in part to Bill Murray's portrayal of Phil, that the performance in this, you can tell the insincerity that Phil has, yeah. while also Phil in this loop multiple times really truly learning how to manipulate people and and making it believable. So like... As an audience, I can see through it, but I also can understand how he's able to manipulate people so well. Yeah, well, there's that great moment when he goes up to Rita at the bar and he's like, oh, let's get a drink. And then she says her favorite drink. I forget what it was, like a Long Island iced tea or something. And he's just right. like, Long Island iced tea, noted. We smash cut to like the next night, the next loop. And he's just like, oh, I'll have a Long Island iced tea. And she's like, oh, that's my favorite. He's like, oh, it's mine too. And then like... He finds out she likes French poetry, so he starts learning French poetry. You know what I mean? Right. It's I found it kind of interesting because, like, he's absolutely being a manipulative jackass. And, like, that scene in the bed and breakfast is really creepy and uncomfortable. Right. But, like, 
in the process of trying to sleep with Rita, he's kind of becoming a more expansive person. And he's also, my theory is that like in the process of learning all these things about her to try to get her pants, he actually is starting to like genuinely fall for her. Right. And also it kind of, it's not like he ever succeeds either with her. And you know, you could argue that maybe with uh, his, his, non high school high school sweetheart there that it's uh, like a little bit more sinister but with with Rita Rita can cut through the bullshit you know yeah and it doesn't she, matter she sees him for exactly who he is yeah and it doesn't matter how many times Phil tries and how many times Phil slightly alters the situation his true self shines through there's that great sequence where like they're having their like I guess you could call it their first date, the romantic night. And it seems like he's actually genuinely enjoying himself. And then she rejects him, and then we see him trying it again, but he's run he, it's like he's very clearly going through the motions, like he's talking too fast, he's being like too aggressive and like all this stuff and like like he's trying to cross items off a list and Rita's just looking at him like, uh, like, yeah, well, and, and she like literally starts to think that he's a stalker at this point too. Right. Yeah, exactly. She's like, did you call all my friends and like, tell them like, get all this information about me? Like, this is weird. Right. Right. Yeah. I know. It's really interesting. And then like, I did also really like that scene at the diner where he's grilling her for information. He's like, Oh, what does your ideal man look like? And she's like, Oh, you know, she says something like he's got a great body, but like he doesn't flaunt it and <laughs> feels like, oh, I, sometimes I go months without looking. <laughs> yeah, that was a very close scene for me to almost sell the movie with. Like, it's probably one of the funnier scenes of the movie. Again, it's Bill Murray at his best. Like, it's Bill Murray's sarcastic humor really shining through. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, again, that moment where she's like, he's sweet and sensitive and isn't afraid to cry in front of me. And he's like, we are talking about a guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that and that's exactly it, right? Like, Phil can only fake being what Rita wants for so long. Like, even in that conversation, there's a point in time in which Phil just cannot continue to keep the, the act up of being, like, a, you know, lovable goofball. Like, he can't help but be himself. <laughs> yeah, he really can't. And then after he gets rejected by Rita too many times, that's when he goes into like his depressive spiral. Right. Where he just, there's that great slap montage where she just keeps slapping him <laughs> over and over again, which yeah. he deserves rightfully. And then I like him just like slumming around the bed and breakfast in his pajamas, like drinking Jack Daniels from the bottle. And like, he's calling out all the Jeopardy answers before like they even finish the question. <laughs> right. That's probably like, you know, obviously that's the darkest part of the movie as well because, you know, he kills himself. What? We we only see him kill himself a few times, like Yeah, by the times, way, but... if you want to know how wild this movie was, there's this there's an unaliving montage. Yeah. And it's <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> well, even the scene with like him stealing the groundhog is kind of like one of the more wild scenes of the entire movie. And one of the most dangerous scenes of the movie for Bill. Um, like yeah. he get he got bit by the groundhog because that actually was the groundhog sitting on his lap. Fun fact: Bill Murray got bitten by it like what twice? Yeah, and and had to go get like all those 
fun shots and everything afterwards. So Bill Murray, part of it himself is himself being miserable during the shooting of this. Part of it's probably justified, honestly. Yeah, I don't want to hang out with a groundhog on my lap, but it is kind of no. funny though. Like by this point, he's presumably spent years in the time loop. He's realized he can never have Rita, so he just decides he's going to kidnap the groundhog, right? Right. It's it almost <laughs> kind of it kind of makes sense. You're just like he's desperate. He doesn't know what else to do. He's like, I'm going to steal the groundhog. It's the groundhog's fault. And I, I think as well, this is like early on in the film. This was something that I was starting to think about, like the writing of putting Phil in this situation, Punxsutawney Phil, him sharing his name with the groundhog, but also sharing, to a degree, his career yeah, with the groundhog. right. And the groundhog being even more loved by the town and everyone around him, like, there's something deeply bittering about that, right? Yeah, being upstaged by an animal. Yeah, and and it's something that early stage... Phil, I don't think could ever deal with. Like, I don't think he could ever come to accept that until later in the film. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's fair. Like, (laughs) I mean, I get it sometimes, you know? If you were just like, we're replacing you, Michael, with a groundhog who's also named Michael, I would be like, what? (laughs) I would probably shoot that groundhog. (laughs) Well, when we're cutting costs on the podcast, it's now an option. Okay, well, well, I'll kidnap it and drive it into the city dump or something <laughs> yeah there's no there's no revenues it's only cost here at vcr Woo! <laughs> <laughs> but i think you know like all of this kind of leads to the acceptance part of this and we've kind of already talked about phil and him finally starting to genuinely become a better person through those acts of kindness towards the townspeople that we see Phil start to become better himself. And and he also like genuinely starts to take an interest in himself as well, right? Like yeah. we, we see him learn to master the art of playing piano. We yeah, see and him. That's one of my favorite moments is he's just chilling at a bar by himself, reading a book. He hears someone playing the piano and he's like, Hmm. And then he goes and gets piano lessons. Like, it's just like, yeah, cool, whatever. Like, he's not trying to impress Rita. He's not trying to sleep with anyone. He's just like, I should learn how to play the piano. Yeah, and then, you know, likewise with the ice sculpturing, and there's a few other kind of things that he benefits himself. Like, he, he to a great degree, he also learns how to get better at his job as well, right? Like, we see him give the speech of a lifetime during the Groundhog Day, yeah, and he mentions Chekhov, like a f- an old-timey classic Russian author. So you're like, oh, he's also reading books, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's doing what eventually I think anybody in a time loop would do. And I, I think as well, like I could even probably connect this a little bit to my own life. You know, once once you start to get into the swing of things and get to understanding you know, life a little bit and where you, what your place in in life is, then, you know, you start to fill yourself full of all of these hobbies and, and things that make you happy. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, you've got infinite time. What else are you going to do? You're eventually going to get so bored that you're going to try something. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's good that you mentioned too, that like, again, this is strictly for himself. Like, there in this sequence we barely even see Rita unless 
she just happens to be in the scene mm-hmm. for like character purposes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Continuity I do, purposes. One thing, though, I do love, and other people point this out, is that even when Phil becomes a better person, he's still kind of a sarcastic dick. You yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's that great moment when he's g- having his piano lessons, and by then he's gotten pretty good, but this woman still thinks it's his first time. She's right. like, you did say this is your this is your first lesson, right? And he's just like, oh, well, my dad was a piano mover, so maybe it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, like, I think, again, you know, like, the, the core personality the core of of who you are as a person doesn't necessarily change but i think phil just learns how to appreciate what's around him and and be a better person right and i i think this is it all comes back to he has that very romantic night with rita where like he convinces her to stay with him but like he's not trying to sleep with her he doesn't want anything from her she's just talking like he's Mm -hmm. convinced her about this time loop and that you know, she's decided she's going to stay with him until it resets, quote unquote. Yeah. She kind of encourages him to think of it more as a blessing. Like, think of all the stuff you can do with all this time, right? And she falls right. asleep and he has that very kind of touching moment where he essentially admits that he's in love with her and that he's always been in love with her and that she's like the kindest, sweetest, most generous person he's ever met. Which is accurate because uh, Andy McDowell is all of those things and more. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. He has phenomenal taste, right? Yeah. And he also kind of admits that he was in love with her from the moment he saw her, and it kind of implies he was just kind of intimidated by her this whole time. And I think this is a credit to both the screenplay and Bill Murray's acting ability is like, by the end of the movie, you kind of get the sense that he's just okay with this. Yeah. Like, he's he just does learn to accept like where he is and, and what he's doing. Yeah, he's just he's just living out the same day over and over again, and he's just making the most of every single day like you know we should all be so grateful and so lucky yeah no and and i think that really is the like the deeper message of the film in a sense right mm-hmm. we've talked about ned ryerson a little bit and his portrayal the time lord yeah <laughs> the time lord himself i uh, i i'm very conflicted about the ned ryerson scenes Okay, go on. I find Ned maybe too annoying in 2024. <laughs> really? What's what's annoying about him specifically in 2024? <laughs> I don't know. He's just it almost feels like too much like it's almost like I I just want Bill Murray to just shut him down kind of. Well, always. there's that great one like there's that great blue where he just straight up punches him in the face and keeps walking. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I I think that it's a really great portrayal. You know, and there there's some there's some good moments out of it, but for me, I guess this is comes down to as well. Like, what do you care most about Groundhog Day? And for me, I actually care more about the deep philosophical stuff and more than I do the comedy. And what's really interesting about even saying that is, it almost puts you on the side of, do you side more with Harold Ramis's take of this film or do you side more with Bill Murray's take of this film? If you're asking me, I definitely subscribe to the Ramis take, you know, like right. Bill's interpretation would have been much, much more bitter and somber. Right. You know, those are two very, very different movies. And I think we got the correct one. You know what I mean? Right. This movie is heartwarming, but it's still like, it's not exactly a saccharine movie. Like it's still, 
no one's going to accuse this movie of being too sweet or anything. You know what I mean? I I don't know. I just, and, and this is a little bit like, you know, dancing on a few different other spots that we'd be talking about, but I I really like the core heart of this story. And while I enjoy the comedy and I love Bill Murray's portrayal in this film, I, I personally am significantly more fascinated with the redemption arc of Phil than I am with the comedic story of, of Phil's journey. I kind of see what you mean. Are you saying you would have preferred less zany comedy and more yeah, introspection? I, th- I I don't know. I think for me, it just like the the Ned scenes, yeah, are a little too zany for me. Do you just really want to punch Ned Ryerson? Is that <laughs> He's just like, and it's funny because I know that there are people out there like that, and there's people probably from high school that I I probably wouldn't want to catch up with myself, like Bill Murray in this scene. (laughs) Yeah. And I know that I'm that person probably for many people as well. (laughs) I didn't want to come right out and say it, but no, I... Is it just that Ned's just too annoying? Like, he's very deliberately annoying, but is he just too annoying for Blake? He might be. He might be. Well, and I think I mentioned this in last week's episode, like, it's funny, you kind of do side with Bill Murray in the first act because everyone in Punxsutawney, did I say that right? Punxsutawney. Punxsutawney, whatever. Everybody is outrageously small town friendly at first, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of inadvertently side with Bill Murray because you're like, ugh, look at these freaking hicks, right? Right. But then... Is it maybe that like the other small town characters maybe acquire more depth or like you just kind of get used to them whereas Ned is always just very annoying? Is that yeah, part that, of what is that part of what's bothering you? That could be it potentially. And and maybe it's also like the way that he is framed as well like like you said as well the other characters get more depth to them like you you, or you learn at least their just backstories. Get, or you at least just get accustomed to them and they're not as outrageously annoying as Ned is. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a that's a good point. I'd have to think about that. I don't have a problem with Ned per se. I kind of enjoy some of his scenes, but I think the last conversation with him is great. Oh yeah, where he just buys all the insurance. Right. So and, Ned and is like, finally lifting the curse from him. <laughs> right. And he's still even like asking like inappropriate questions. He's like, Where like, are we going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then uh Rita kind of shuts him down and he's just like, oh, okay. Like he gets it and he just yeah. leaves him alone. So right. I don't know. You know, fun fact, um, we talked about how Dan Harmon wanted Bill Murray to play Jeff Winger's father on Community. Um, right. The actor who plays Ned Ryerson was a guest spot in the second season, I think. Yeah. You know what? Now that you say that, I do he was, kind um, of remember there's him. There's that episode where Abed is taking a class about who's the boss, the 80s sitcom. And the right. professor has written a book about who the real boss is. And him and Abed, Abed causes him to have a mental breakdown. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's because of the fact that I'm also somewhat of an introverted person that that's just somebody that is way too much in my space. Oh, yeah. And it's, he's the worst, right? Because like he's got all this energy. He's way in your space. And then he's trying to sell you something. <laughs> like yeah. that is really obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. You know, in a lot of stories, a pretty girl gets treated as, like, a prize that the hero has to win. Like, the movie often frames pretty girls' love interests as, like, trophies that the hero gets to win 
just by virtue of being a bad enough dude or something. But like, this is one of those cases where like, I don't feel like that was unearned or at least I don't feel like that was the, I feel like Rita in Rita is not explicitly framed that way. You know, like, yes, she's a very beautiful woman, but like by the end of the movie, Phil has become such a decent person. She's the one pursuing him. Yeah, right. right. Like he, he, because he definitely gives up and we see him give up on trying to pursue that. Yeah. So, hey, to all the young men listening, if there's a pretty girl that you like, um, don't pursue and just become the best version of yourself and maybe she'll pursue you. Or maybe but, you'll find someone even better. Right. Wah, wah, wah. Wah. Life stories on VCR <laughs> or life lessons on VCR. Exactly. But you might have to win over an entire small town in the process <laughs> in order to get her attention. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk effects and filming then. I kind of, I think, want to start with the actual script of Groundhog Day and and the story of how this came to be because I think that this is probably the most well-documented start-to-finish film in one of the more documented start-to-finish films in modern history. It's certainly the most documented comedy that I'm aware of. Apart from maybe like yeah, I mean, the what's room. his face? <laughs> Dan Rubin has been very open about the writing process behind this movie. Yeah, he's almost made like a whole second career out of it. Yeah, certainly. And Danny Rubin is known primarily for Groundhog Day and never quite achieved anything on the same magnitude. And you know, probably most people who start with something this impactful rarely ever do, right? Yeah, let that be another lesson to you kids. If you're going to do something amazing, make sure make sure you retire right after. <laughs> it's just it's it's hard. It's hard chasing perfection. It's sense. hard to um hit the zeitgeist twice. It's hard enough to hit it once. Yeah. Probably the Matrix movies are the best example of that, but Oh god, yes. <laughs> Even though I love I love the series as a whole, I, I will admit that the first movie is miles above and and so much more culturally impactful than the rest of the series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, Groundhog Day, Danny Rubin. The first draft of this was based on the novel The Vampire Lestat. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how it's the, it comes out of the conception of like immortality and how you would spend your time, how you might change as a person over that time. And that's actually he kind of combined that with a previous idea that he had thought about, about waking up and, and living the same day over and over again. And then the final component of this is trying to, and, and this is a probably a good writing decision in terms of making a lasting impact on culture, trying to wrap this all into a holiday and coming up with the idea of maybe even a lesser known holiday that still, you know, this movie came out in 1993, so this movie has been out for our literal entire lives. So we don't know, you and I don't know what the impact of Groundhog Day was prior to this, but it's certainly something that you see televised and reported on on an annual basis. Yeah, absolutely, right? So whether or not this movie created that impact or this movie capitalized on that holiday itself i I guess i don't actually know the answer to that i don't really know either um i mean you don't hear much about groundhog day do you yeah 
I still I think it's brought up like on a regular basis in most media like traditional media platforms. Maybe we need to watch more local news. <laughs> <laughs> uh I don't know about that. Maybe maybe we need to keep local news alive. I that's that's something that I hear. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I use <laughs> I technically work in local news and I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that originally with the script like and if you go into the details of this, the original script idea is so much more complicated than than eventually what we got here, right? Yeah. I think I was reading today that like they were going to explain the time loop as like Phil's ex-girlfriend putting a curse on him. Right. And they very wisely cut that cuz that would have been fucking stupid. <laughs> well, that's something I think that the studio wanted, right? Is they wanted an explanation because, you know, we can't And this is maybe something that I've talked about before is ambiguity in film. And I don't like ambiguous endings. <laughs> yeah, I don't like I don't like endings like that, but I think that sometimes depending on the story that you're trying to tell, we as the audience don't need every single answer to every single question oh and i mean for something like this like what possible answer could there be right like that would again, be satisfying yeah yeah i mean again if it's like oh his ex-girlfriend put a hex on him it's like are you fucking kidding me like that's the problem i have with stephen king sometimes is that sometimes his explanations for things i was like i would almost rather you just neglected an explanation steve because that was pretty dumb well that would have made the i think that would have made the film feel a little bit more like an snl bit right yeah basically right um like a blues brothers carrie fisher kind of idea a bunch (laughs) of silly buggers yeah anyway like so then he he wrote the original script and kind of shopped it around for a while as you do yeah as as you are aware of and eventually harold ramus got a hold of it and picked it up and he i think he had really mixed feelings on it initially like it was something that he wanted to produce and and ended up directing but it actually went through a lot of rewriting and even more rewriting on the rewriting over time i think i remember um what's his face the guy who plays ned ryerson said that when he showed up for his first day of shooting they handed him a brand new script which was probably like two-thirds new material. Yeah, well, and even, like, the final Ned Ryerson scene was just kind of tacked on at the end of filming. They were just like, oh, here you go, yeah. They were like, oh, you know what? We could actually use one more Ned Ryerson scene. I actually really liked that scene. That was my favorite Ned Ryerson scene, and I actually think that it retcons some of my problems with the earlier scenes a little bit, but, you know, it, it that goes to showing some of, A, the chaos of, of the script and the revisions through time. And that's the reality of all films. Like if you... Hey, that's the reality of the creative process, baby. It's a fucking mess. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, I just watched like The Shining the other day in theater, which was an awesome experience, but I I went home and immediately was like, I need to read everything about this movie because it was so great. And that is, again, something that happened and occurred on set of that is that every day they were getting new revisions to the script. And it's not as extreme as something like The Shining, but in this case, like with this film, I think the writing process is so fascinating to dive into here. Oh, yeah. And I mean, even like there are rumors that like, you know, major studio movies today sometimes start shooting without a completed script and they just kind of wing it. 
Right. And well, and you can see, I think, some of the like, you know, most famous stories like the new Star Wars trilogy, right? Like uh, not having a cohesive idea. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a situation <laughs> where it really didn't work. Yeah, exactly. But that's also, you know, trying to tell a cohesive story through a series where again, I think that's also part of the time too, right? Like when you and I are watching TV, for example, in 2024, we have the golden era of television of the last 10 to 15 years to choose Woo! from. And the best of that era tells a cohesive story from start to finish. And while there might not be like, you know, we're starting here, we're go- we know how to get to point A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. They know point A, they know point Z often and and they can figure it out in between and make a cohesive story that makes sense right oh i've often said that like you know it's you know even with my own writing process it's like it's you got to know where you're starting and you got to know where you're ending like you can right you can flounder around in the middle but you got to know where you're going yeah and actually that comes back to in the case of groundhog day i think the ending of Groundhog Day went through a serious revision, entirely for the better, in my opinion. In the original Ruben ending, Rita actually ends up trapped in her own time loop. Yeah. And that's how it ends, I, right? Yeah, Jesus. That would have been a very jarring ending. Yeah. Like, it, it wouldn't provide any sort of satisfaction, really, right? Like, the only part that I guess I could say silver lining to that would be that you know, she has somebody like Phil who understands and can be very quickly explained to, I am stuck in this now and I'm experiencing this. But uh, that would have completely ruined the entire movie for me. Oh, I think. Yeah. And I mean, maybe there was in that original draft, it made more sense. But I mean, yeah. Bleh. Yeah. And stuff like that. Like, like Harold Ramis was really interested in this as a comedy, but he on first read did not think that the script was funny at all. And obviously somebody like Harold Ramis and even Bill Murray would be credited with all of the funnier moments of the film. And a lot of it, like there were moments of Bill Murray just ad-libbing quotes, right? Oh yeah, for sure. The wherever you're headed, could you call in sick? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was all Bill Murray. Yeah, exactly, right? But the original script is significantly more interested in the spiritual ideas of the what the film takes on. You know, there's an interesting tightrope there to walk, and everybody's going to have their preference. Like I've already kind of said, I prefer the more spiritual ideas and concepts of the film than I do the comedy. But with this film, and part of the reason why I think this film is held up so well is that you know, you can you can take whatever you want out of this, right? Like, you can enjoy it just for the comedy that it is, or you can enjoy it for the bigger ideas that it has. You know, for me, I think this movie strikes the perfect balance because, like, generally my philosophy is when I open a book or turn on a movie or watch a show, fundamentally, I want to be entertained, right? Yeah. If there's some deeper themes or deeper messages, that's great. But I think as a consumer and as an artist myself your first goal needs to be to entertain. I I absolutely agree with that mm-hmm. idea. And that's, you know, on the side, you and I have talked about my ambitions to edit some films and some film series at some point. 
And like we've even talked recently about my rewatch of the Peter Jackson Hobbit trilogy. And, you know, we talked about what I would want to do to that. And Jess said while we were in that conversation, like, oh, you would, you probably would re- need to reread the book actually to tell the story in its original intention. And I actually pushed back on that and said, no, like I actually care more about making the Hobbit trilogy into like a pure piece of film entertainment. And I think that trying to directly apply the source material there, hey, it's already been done before. You can find film fan edits that make the Hobbit series true to that series. But B, as somebody who really loves film and is very interested in it, like, and and this is like basically, you know, my one of my only versions of art that I I really would be able to talk on. Yeah. The entertainment aspect is, like you said, front and foremost for me. Yeah, no. And I mean, you know, a lot of intellectuals will be rolling their eyes at us right now, but like it's not easy to entertain, you know? No. Like it's complicated, you know? And then like, don't look down on entertainment because, like, it's hard to entertain an audience. And even, like, the people who are in charge, the people that you would consider to be experts on the subject, I think you've said this before, like, have no idea what actually is going to entertain or not. Yeah, and that's the famous William Goldman quote is, nobody knows anything in all caps. Like, <laughs> right. you know, we have no idea what's going to stick and what's not. So, uh, like... Yeah, so just in a sense, do create the art that you want to create, but never forget the audience that's going to be consuming it, I guess is the lesson here. I guess so. It, it, it reminds <laughs> me of um, in Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, Jerry Seinfeld talks about the idea of like sitcoms that fail. And it's like, here, we've spent millions of dollars on this sitcom and we're broadcasting it for free to your living room. And people just being like, we don't want it. <laughs> yeah. In speaking to all of this, like it goes through its first draft, it goes through its rewrites with Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin working together to rewrite, and then it even, to a degree, goes through a rewrite with Bill Murray be getting involved with the film. The Murricane, yeah. Because he, at this point in time, part of it's like external factors, he's going through a divorce at this time, but he's also kind of a little bit more interested in the long-term idea for, I think, his career as an artist. Mm-hmm. And he's he's certainly more interested with the contemplative aspects of the movie rather than the comedy. And that's actually where Harold Ramis and Bill Murray really butted heads on this, right? Throughout filming. Yeah, I think Danny Rubin explicitly compared them to like brothers who weren't getting along. Yeah, at one point in time, Harold Ramis actually just basically pawned Murray off to Danny Rubin and didn't really want to discuss changes to the plot or or scenes with Bill Murray. There's other quotes from on set of the film where Harold Ramis would kind of try to explain scenes to Bill Murray and he would just ask like, do you want good fill or bad fill and stuff like that, right? (laughs) Jesus. they, They really struggled to kind of see eye to eye with the film and what they were making. Well, and that's partially like just the dumb luck of them perfectly balancing between the comedy and the contemplative, right? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I do find it kind of tragic that like Bill Murray was so unhappy with the experience that he didn't speak to Harold Ramis for years after this movie. Well, yeah, that's a whole different that's story. The hurricane, like, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and there's some other like really famous 
comedy comedian duos comedic duos who also have similar experiences where it's like when they do come together it's lightning in a bottle but they're just two such large personalities that it's hard to work together when you have like you know two two people who i would consider absolute masters of their craft yeah i mean how do you that is kind of a clash of the titans kind of situation and i mean you're right it worked out in this case it's just kind of tragic that it led to some hurt feelings although i guess they reconciled before harold ramus's death so you know whatever and that you know what there's even like an aspect of that of like working with friends and family too right yeah yeah exactly don't mix business with pleasure (laughs) yeah exactly and like that's bound to cause issues like and you're not always going to work well with everybody but so you can you can both be extremely talented and also completely clash on completely disagree yeah yeah which you and i sometimes do during the podcast here but we yeah, have we, the mildest disagreements. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you and I have a part, part of it's because we've talked about movies and culture for our literal entire lives. Like, it's something that you and I know how to navigate these conversations really well, even if we're not seeing eye to eye on stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people, I mean, as soon as the we stop recording, we just scream at each other just for those, <laughs> for those <laughs> not in the know. We don't speak to each other outside of the podcast, yeah, actually. Yeah, exactly. We have a mediary <laughs> who navigates between yeah. us bef- yeah. during the, b- after recording. Uh, I could even imagine, like, and that happens. Like, that happens in art, <laughs> really. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? It's wild. Yeah, I guess the only other piece of effects and filming that i really wanted to mention was the scene where phil breaks the uh pencil to see if it'll regenerate um he lives inside his bed the original scene that they shot for it was of phil destroying the entire room like spray painting walls like just smashing everything he shaves his head in the scene and then they were trying for a shot of like all of this happening and then they were going to pan out after he shaves his head and his hair just like appears again and everything behind him just immediately fixes. And in 1993, they didn't quite have the the VFX to pull that off. No, that also just sounds like a lot. You know what I mean? The yeah. whole pencil thing is very effective and it's very understated. Yeah, and actually, this is my only spot where I could shoehorn this in. I I love this scene where Phil is breaking the clock over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. And I particularly, I love the camera shot of the close-up of the clock and the numbers, like, slowly tick Mm -hmm. down to 6 a.m. That's just, like, one of those little details that really popped for me. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk score really briefly. And the thing that I actually want to talk about the most for the score is the use of the song, I Got You, Babe. <laughs> right. My favorite, by the way, my favorite is when he finally breaks the time loop and the radio DJs accidentally play it again. And it, right. the one DJ's like, come on, man, that song's awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, so I Got You, Babe was written by Sonny and Cher back in 1965. And oh. when I say share in 1965, I literally mean like that share. 
In she has been making music for that long. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Which is wild. Uh, so it was originally her and her husband at the time's band that they had together. And I got to say, like, it's a really great song. It's a really great song choice because it's annoyingly catchy, right? And repetitive. Okay, yeah. It's something that, for me personally, it's been stuck in my head for the last week or so since watching the movie. You know, every time I think of this movie, eventually, within a minute or two of thinking about it, the song, the melody of the song really starts to play over and over in my head. Okay, I have not gone completely insane that same way, but okay, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I, I just think that it was a really great song choice, and I think that, you know, people who care have more waiting on the the score and the mix probably than you <laughs> yeah sorry are, bro. are gonna pick up on that <laughs> but that's okay you care more about story than i care about story often so you know we all we have to all have our likes and what we care about what what hills we're willing to die on that's our bill murray harold ramus partnership right now <laughs> yeah yeah exactly although that's complimentary in a sense though because I could like really appreciate the score and pick up on the score and you would pick up on the plot and like the intricate details of the plot, right? Well, Bill Murray and uh, Harold Ramis's uh, relationship was complimentary too. They just hated each other. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Otherwise, like the rest of the score is a pretty like standard 90s score. I didn't really think about it too hard while I was watching it. I don't really have a whole lot of feedback on it. Like it's probably one of the weaker elements of the film that, you know, didn't didn't pop in this one for me. No. I mean, I didn't notice, but, like, I often don't notice the score, so I can't really wait. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I do want to do a quick look back at the times. This came out in 1993, and if you actually go back and look at the 1993 year as a movie year, I think this is maybe one of the top, 10 best years in film ever so let me just quickly give you the list of movies that also came out in 1993 jurassic park highest grossing film of all time the year it came out might have heard of it yeah mrs doubtfire and indecent proposal wayne's world all the comedies that this one would have been competing with uh free willy came out then schindler's list in philadelphia oh Dazed my. and confused batman mask of the phantasm yeah before christmas Wow. It's wild that this movie actually has stood up to the test of time because there's a lot of other movies in that year which often are cited as some of the greatest movies of all time for their genre or film style or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, this was a a tough year. Oh, Nightmare Before Christmas also came out that year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the last one I said. Like, so, (laughs) you know, of those movies that I listed, I've watched almost half of them within the last five years, right? Yeah, for sure. Personally. At at the time, though, this movie was actually somewhat misunderstood by critics. Like, everybody kind of had a bone to pick with something or other with the film. Like, very, very differing opinions on this one. Mm. Really, the only thing that everybody immediately loved was Bill Murray and Andy McDowell's performances. In oh, film. yeah. I mean, that's front and center, right? Yeah, that's the universal thing that everybody did enjoy, but there were people who didn't like the comedy elements. They didn't like the philosophical elements. They thought, you know, they focused on a little too much of this, a little too much of that. Like, there were so many different aspects of the movie that people weren't in love with. And 
part of it again was like, well, we didn't get an explanation of what the time loop is and stuff like that. But in terms of the legacy of this film, like that's something that I think has been, you know, significantly reevaluated over time. And that's one of the cool things about art is that it can be reevaluated over time, right? Yeah, absolutely. We talked about this in the primer. Like I consider this a much must watch film at some point in your life. It's one of the classic comedies. It's the time loop movie and time loop piece of culture that has spawned a whole subgenre, as you put it. Mm-hmm. It also, this is the reason why Bill Murray gets more depth in roles after this. Like, you know, his Wes Anderson relationship and all of the films his they've done very, together. Very, very productive relationship with Wes Anderson. That might not have come around without a film like this. And and same thing with Sofia Coppola and Lost in Translation. It's interesting to see how this film fits into somebody's legacy. Yeah, absolutely. It also, you know, had a had a pretty big impact on the town of Punxsutawney itself. Like we were talking about how we weren't sure how nationally how this affected Groundhog Day and, and people's interest in Groundhog Day, but at a, at a smaller level, at the Punxsutawney level, in 1994, 35,000 people showed up to Punxsutawney for Groundhog Day. Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. The town of Woodstock, Illinois, where they actually filmed Groundhog Day, there's plaques of all the key locations. Um, you can really make a vacation out of going and like visiting the set of this film because it's a live setting. Interesting. Even the famous pothole is actually still there. <laughs> no one has ever filled it in. That's really funny. William Goldman in 1993 said that this would be the movie of 1993 that would be remembered in 10 years, which, as I just explained with all of the movies that came out that year, like he's not necessarily wrong. Like This is one of the most culturally impactful movies of that decade, even. Hey, it's been 31 years and we're talking about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's our that's our job on this is to bring you movies that we think you might be interested in, but even still. That, I guess that speaks to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you tried to downplay my point, but then you just talked yourself back into it. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you need to full circle yourself. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, the other like so we've talked about Palm Springs, we've talked about Edge of Tomorrow. The games like Deathloop and Outer Wilds that like share connections to this. Like a lot of this stuff doesn't get made without something like this. Russian Doll is the Netflix TV show that came out in the last five years that really plays with this concept over over a TV series. Uh, Fifty First Dates probably doesn't get made without this movie. Mm. Even like the movie Yesterday, which I I really enjoyed um, when it came out. The Danny Boyle kind of what if comedy if what if everybody forgot that the Beatles existed except right, for one person right. stuff like that like really nods to something like this and not only I guess making fantasy mainstream in a sense but also like making the audience more intelligent and being able to conceptualize and be more willing to accept you know like these fantasy type of elements but, like, the other thing component of this is, like, movies that don't even share, like, the time loop idea, but share more fantasy elements to them do become more mainstream after this. And, you know, we play with the idea of this. 
and a few of the examples that I had found online were and nods to this movie were like, I mean, two of them are Jim Carrey movies, Liar Liar and The Truman Show, right? Like mm-hmm. something that is real that would never happen in real life. I mean, that you or I are aware of that the audience can accept relatively quickly because of a movie like this. I guess this movie did kind of was one of the first like fantasy comedies of the nineties. Well, in fantasy in, yeah. And fantasy in the sense of like true surreal otherworldly kind of elements to them. Right. Like, you know, we had, we had fantasy comedies in a sense with like Robin hood men in tights or something like that. Right. But there's like a there's a parodiness to that, um, whereas this is kind of doing its own original thing. It's almost like high fantasy comedy. Yeah, kind of. That's that's all my thoughts on that stuff. Personal reviews in the partner factor. You and I have probably more than usual kind of talked about where we sit with this film, but I don't know. Maybe you want to start with with your summarized thoughts on this one and what uh your girlfriend thought of it as well well my girlfriend wouldn't watch it with me so (laughs) (laughs) it's just me today but i really enjoyed this movie quite a lot like honestly i it's probably in my top 10 top 20 yeah so it's again it's one of the few movies where i don't really have anything to complain about and you know me i love complaining so (laughs) this is a real this is a real sticky situation for me and again, we've kind of talked about this in the primary episode. I would probably put this in my top 40, top 50 somewhere because I, I think it's a classic. I think it's a must-watch film at some point in your life that everybody can connect to on some level to some degree. But I think that in 2024, the first 40 minutes to an hour don't quite hold up. And that's, again, partially because of the success of a film like this and the idea is just becoming universal concepts that people understand and can conceptualize that in a way slightly hurt the film. I don't think I agree, but I see your point. I think this movie stands up pretty well. Yeah, and that's something that Jess and I both share. And again, it's not to say that I don't love this movie because I'm saying that this is my top 30, top 40, but I, I can recognize and especially because of framing this in the sense of what this podcast is and what what we're trying to do on this that it doesn't necessarily always stand the test of time because of its success in Mm. in the culture okay which which is a weird place to be in right but imagine being so successful you've actually crossed infinity and become a little less successful (laughs) i mean at the end of the day though i you know i can knock the first part of this movie down a point but the last half of this film is so good and like like i said at the at the point in time where phil's playing the piano and then you know everybody starts bidding for him and like there's this general excitement in the crowd of like this person is larger than life and everybody wants to be in his life and and be a part of his life like i i got a little emotional at that i was like you know like it really turns things around for we me. We should all be so lucky, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. We and, and like, it, and it shows as well, right? That like you can live in your own pleasures for as long as you want. You can like focus on yourself and everything, 
But at the end of the day, part of your legacy is what you've shared of yourself with those around you, right? Yeah, and that's, you know what? That's a pretty compelling message. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's true. Like, I think this is the kind of movie, too, that gets better as you get older. I agree. It's a very very mature movie in some sense. Yeah, I mean, like, I still enjoyed it as a teenager. I probably watched this movie in my early teens, like, probably 10 years old or so when I first watched this. And I really liked it back then. But, yeah, once, once you've lived life, I think, a little bit and experienced life, I think you start to understand fill a little bit more yeah and you start to understand what's really important more and more at least hopefully if you're doing things right (laughs) you know this would be a good litmus test like show this movie to a 40 year old man who's never seen it and if he doesn't like it then we shoot him into the sun i don't know (laughs) this metaphor kind of ran away from me (laughs) you gotta workshop that one a little bit Ah. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i and just kind of sits in the exact same spot as me. She has the exact same thoughts on this one as me. We were very much on the same page after this one, and our discussion was very, very similar uh, opinion on this one, which her and I don't always share on a lot of movies. So No, I was going to say, like, first time for everything. You guys agreed on a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's it for everything I want to talk about with the movie great movie i like i mean i recommend it like i've said in the the primer episode this is a movie for literally everyone to experience at least once in their life yeah no i i have nothing but good things to say about this movie too i'm grateful we did it like it gave me an excuse to rewatch it yeah 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 for sure and then upcoming we've got true romance which is our first quentin tarantino movie that we're doing on the podcast even though it's you know not a quentin tarantino directed movie it's not a pure Tarantino experience. No, but it's. I, I think it's really cool that we're getting to experience him in, in this way uh, because I think that's going to add something to the conversation about the film itself, right? Have you seen True Romance before? Uh, No, I haven't. It's a very interesting film, and I don't know if, if you're going to have capacity to check it out before Jason and I do the episode or not, or even if you'd want to join us, but... I think it's very fascinating, and I'm I'm really looking forward to rewatching it and discussing it because this will be only my second time actually seeing this movie. The first time Jess and I checked it out last year, and then upcoming we've got our Oscars series. We're doing two movies from a past Oscars that were both nominated, and one of them won the Oscar for Best Picture of that year. I did my research. I found a similar year that we can compare to this year with like a movie like Oppenheimer being you know, the big obvious choice for a lot of awards, but as well, something like another biographical type of film based on a novel in Killers of the Flower Moon. I've found the closest comparison to to this year, and that means we're doing Lawrence of Arabia and we're doing To Kill a Mockingbird, both of which I'm really excited to watch. I've only ever seen To Kill a Mockingbird once in high school, and Lawrence of Arabia has been something that jason and i have been talking about since we started this podcast i haven't seen either so i'm excited to jump on board with those yeah yeah for sure so stay tuned for all of that we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming and there might even be a roadhouse episode coming up at some point soon 
Okay. <laughs> First time hearing of this, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it's something that Jason and I have been talking about back and forth. It's in our group chat that you never read, so. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's it for Groundhog Day. I hope everybody had fun because it's cold outside. Bring your booties. And we'll see you next time. Tell your dad. Tell your dad. <laughs>